0: All right, we're going to start our series on Judges tonight. So Judges chapter 1 will be there, and we're going to go into chapter 2 as well. So Judges chapter 1, I'm going to read, uh, I'm just going to uh, read the first two verses and then jump to chapter 2 and read the first five verses there, and uh, that'll be kind of like the bookend. But uh, tonight, our series begins with a message called, Take the Land, Take the Land. So Judges chapter 1 verses 1 and 2, and then Judges chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. These are the words of God. Now it happened after the death of Joshua that the sons of Israel asked of Yahweh, saying, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And Yahweh said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And then chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel of Yahweh came up from Gilgal to Bacchum, and he said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall cut no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not listened to my voice. What is this you have done? Therefore also, I also said, I will not drive them out before you. But they will become as thorns in your sides, and their gods will become a snare to you. So it happened there that when the angel of Yahweh spoke in these words to all the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voice and wept. So they named that place Bakim, and there they sacrificed to Yahweh. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we come now before you asking that you would implant within us a longing to fulfill your righteous requirements. We know that this comes about through the Holy Spirit, and yet we oftentimes find ourselves quenching the Spirit. Help us not to suppress His work, but embrace His work. Father, You have given us Your Son, our great Holy Spirit-filled leader. He is our great judge. He is the great deliverer. Help us to follow Him, to love Him, and obey Him. As we look to Your Word, we ask that You would give us the guidance necessary to hear it and do it. In Christ's name I pray, amen well as i mentioned we're going to begin our journey through the book of judges and uh, i've wanted to preach through this book for quite some time and i'm excited to have the opportunity uh, to do so and it may be helpful just as kind of a matter of housekeeping uh, for you to read ahead as you go as we go through the series so i'll go ahead and drop that in the chat ahead of time just so you can kind of know because big narratives like this can be challenging to preach through because i'm not going to go through every single verse and explain every single thing Uh, It would take too long, but the bulk of our time is going to be centered on the judges themselves and the narratives that are surrounding them. Uh, Most familiar to people would be, of course, uh, Samson and the story that we find there. So we're going to focus mostly on the judges, but I'll let you know ahead of time and you you can kind of read ahead. And so that said, by way of introduction, I just want to give a couple of minutes and explain the book as a whole, and then we'll go into it. The book begins by rehearsing several different events that happened in the book of Joshua. Now remember that Caleb, Joshua and Caleb were the only two from the wilderness generation who were able to go into the land of promise. It was only Joshua and Caleb. Joshua was Moses' sharath, his assistant. His, he was a minister to Moses, uh, sort of his right-hand man. And Caleb was one of the faithful spies who went and reported back and had faith in what God was doing, and so he was a faithful man. The book of Joshua covers the initial entry into the land, the initial battles. You might remember battles of Jericho and Ai, two important initial battles in the book of Joshua. But by the end of the book of Joshua, the tribal lands are set up and people have their own section of the new land of promise. Judges starts by recapping where things are at by dealing with a second movement into the land essentially the eradication of the canaanites from the land and then the subsequent settling down of the tribes in the land with with joshua the israelites entered into the land but in judges we have the process of taking the land and settling in it so the two books overlap and you'll find next week's kind of another intro as well the for the end of chapter two but you'll find that we're told already that Joshua is dead, but then they sort of talk about Joshua is still alive and then he died. And then, so there's kind of some overlap, and it can be confusing in the narrative, but it's really not when you stop and think for a minute. But Judges, we had the process of taking the land. The, the, diff, the books are very different. Joshua and Judges are uh, similar, uh, describing similar events and activities, but they're, they're very different. Joshua is very positive, very optimistic. Um, in the exhortation that Aaron read the, from Joshua chapter 1 about this book shall not, book of the law shall not depart from your mouth but you shall be careful to meditate upon it day and night uh, so that you may be careful to do all that is written in it and then you will have a blessed and prosperous way that's what he promises in Joshua 1 verse 8 so that's a very positive thing but then you get into the book of Judges and things are very negative very pessimistic so Joshua is positive and optimistic, Judges is very negative, very pessimistic about what is going on. Now the time frame of this, assuming the traditional date of the Exodus, when did the Exodus happen? Roughly 1446 BC. So I'm kind of working with that. It's a very conservative and very, uh, you kind of have to date back to some things from Solomon and you know, as the Bible tells us certain dates, and you kind of go work your way back. But probably the Exodus happened in 1446 B.C. So that puts the time of the Judges between the years basically around 1400 B.C. to 1100 B.C. So it's, it's kind of easy to remember those dates because just always think of David as the year 1,000. So 3,000 years ago, King David ruled over Israel. And then you can kind of work your way back. So Judges is around 1400 B.C., To 1100 BC, that's about 300 years of history in the in the book itself. It is probable, and I'm convinced of this, that the prophet Samuel was the one who wrote the book of Judges. There, there's always debate about authorship, but I don't think I think it's a pretty solid, uh, I think it's a pretty solid and reasonable assumption to say that Samuel wrote it during the reign of David. Now, keep in mind also. that as we get into this time period, Samson, if you can wrap your mind around this, Samson was a contemporary of Samuel the prophet. So when you go into 1 Samuel chapter 1 and you read about Samuel being born to Hannah and that whole story, Samson is going on around that time as well. So it's kind of a... And then you have Ruth is is involved in the time of the Judges too. So a a lot of the Old Testament, it seems like they're all separate, but they're really kind of all enmeshed together. So Judges itself, the book gets its name from the various judges or the various deliverers of Israel. They show up in the timeline periodically. Now, much ink has been spilled trying to nail down what they should be called, but Judges is definitely the best choice. When we think of Judges today, we usually just think of the judicial branch of government. We think of courtrooms, we think of black robes, and that's just kind of what we're familiar with. But here we're actually speaking not of judges in primarily that sense, but judges who are spirit-anointed deliverers who win battles against God's enemies. It's the most basic definition. What is a judge in the book of Judges? He is a he or she, in this case, was a spirit-anointed deliverer who wins battles against God's enemies. In fact, what we learn with judges is that Israel is at its best, at her best when a spirit-endowed leader is present in the, na- in the nation. So this, this deliverer is actually like a Messiah figure, one anointed for the task of salvation and redemption and deliverance of God's people. He or she, we think of Deborah as we'll, we'll go, but serves as a, as a military leader when dealing with foreign nations. So there are battles, there are constant skirmishes and so on and so forth. The judge is like a military leader in that regard. The judge is also uh, an administer of justice as as it pertains to things that happen inside the nation of Israel itself. And then religiously speaking, a judge is an anointed one. He is the covenant keeper par excellence. He's the one who is someone that should be imitated as we follow God. Now, what we learn from the book of Judges is this. This is just like, (laughs) this is the whole book in one sentence. When there is no spirit-anointed deliverer present in the nation, the covenant community devolves into anarchy and idolatry. And, and by anarchy, I simply mean lawlessness, not even regard to the law of God, um, just moral debauchery. When there's no spirit-anointed deliverer present in the nation, the nation, the community of God's people devolves into total chaos, total moral idolatry. So without the Holy Spirit, the community becomes Canaan. That's what the book of Judges warns against. Without, with, you know, Think of today, without the Holy Spirit and the Word of God present in the people of God, the church, we just become the world. We just become like the world. Communities are meant to be guided by the Holy Spirit, and in Christ, that's what we have. Proverbs 29.18, you remember this verse, where there is no prophetic vision, the people perish. Where there is no vision, the people perish. And, and by the way, that vision isn't the, the cool, like, hipster church that has this really cool vision statement that they spent months hiring out this agency to come up with. <laughs> it's not that. The vision in Proverbs is the law of God, the direction of the Torah, the, the vision of God's will for your life. Where there is none of that, the people Perish. Judges is a textbook case of people perishing without knowledge of the law of God. And you can look up Hosea chapter 4, verse 6 for that. Hosea 4, 6 references people perish for lack of knowledge. And what we'll see in this series is an entire social order easily crumble within a single generation. My hope is for us to kind of use the book of Judges as a guide to what we see going on around us today. And that will come out as we go. We'll see who they worship or don't worship, as it were. We'll see their behavior put on full display. While the battles are blitzkrieg in style, the book isn't about war, although that's a part of it, but the book isn't primarily about war, at least in a purely materialistic sense. It's not just about ox and swords being jammed into the heads of people, <laughs> though there's a place for that <laughs> in, in the book of Judges. But in the midst of God's battle against humanism, which is what it is, we'll see God shaping a community to reflect the pulse of heaven. So over a dozen times, there's this phrase that pops up. It's the theme of the book. And if you go to the very end of your Bible, if you want to see the last verse in the book of Judges, you can see in Judges 21, 25, it says this, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's the last verse in the book very negative, pessimistic tone. There was no king in Israel. There was no Davidic royal person. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So Samuel clearly writes judges as a polemic against idolatry. Two things are noteworthy. First, the phrase, there was no king in Israel, is definitely a messianic way of saying that the people needed a deliverer, but one who would last. One who would be there present with them. A true and everlasting deliverer. It is absolutely a Davidic theme. The people wanted a David-like king to rescue them, even though David had not yet been born. They, uh, they looked to executive power to save them, which is a spiritual no-no. And Samuel warned against this as well uh, when they wanted a king like the other nations. And Samuel says, are you sure? They're going to tax you, put you to hard work, it's going to be a rough go. And then, Rehoboam takes over and later he's the one that doubles the taxes like what they're talking about doing in California. Mind blowing, right? By the way, Ruth, I mentioned Ruth, Ruth takes place during the period of the judges but Ruth is written, it's just four chapters, Ruth is written to set the stage for King David. So, all of this stuff is sort of a recollection of we need some deliverer, an anointed prophet priest king who is going to save us. And Everybody's leading up to this David thing. So there's no, no king in Israel. But the second thing, interestingly, about that phrase, uh, the, the whole point of the book, is the, the right in his own eyes, everyone did what was right in his own eyes phrase, which, again, is repeated throughout the entire book, is meant to awaken us to the problem of human autonomy. So you're going to see that. In fact, and the Legacy Standard Bible brings this out, interestingly enough, uh, with Samson, and how he saw the woman, and she looked good to him in his own eyes. And there's a literary connection, because that's the theme. That's the thing. You're doing what's right in your own eyes, and um, we have problems when we do that. And, and I also think this is a deliberate reference to the garden, when Eve saw with her eyes, right, she saw that the tree was a delight, The ears are the organ of choice of theonomy because we need to hear God's Word and then obey God's Word. That's why preaching plays a significant role in the life of the church. We need to hear God's Word. We need to be thinking about God's Word. The ear is the choice of God's law. But the eyes are the organ of choice of autonomy. Only what we see, seeing what's in front of us, and that's it. And only seeing what's in front of us and then building your entire life around that. That is what Judges warns us against. So the heart, the heart is the ground motive, that's the foundation of all humanity. All of humans are driven back to this issue where the heart is what springs forth the issues of life, Proverbs 4 says. So the heart is the foundation, but the heart is supposed to be informed by what it hears, not what it sees. So make that connection now, because it's going to show up again later in Judges. The heart is supposed to be informed by what it hears, not what it sees. That's why Paul says we don't walk by sight. We walk by faith, not by sight. Because walking by sight, by what you can only see, leads you down the path of autonomy, a rejection of who God is. We need to hear God's word. So Judges tells us that story. and In fact, the, the, uh, behind the entire book of Judges lies the problem of Genesis 3, the entrance of sin into the covenant community. Several stories are going to remind us of the imagery where the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent while the serpent will bruise the heel of the Messiah figure. That's Genesis 3. So that theme is going to continue to pop up, especially the gruesome uh, scene where the... Uh, peg is driven through the, uh, the skull of an un- unfortunate uh, <laughs> uh, person, um, that's, that's imagery of the crushing of the skull of the serpent. And so those things are going to kind of keep popping up. So judges, that's the great antithesis. See to the serpent, see to the woman, who's going to obey God, who's going to do their own autonomous thing. And one more thing before we really dig into the passage this evening. The Bible's position on warfare against the Canaanites is twofold. And I want to deal with this because atheists love to to speak of the gruesome nature of this text and a loving God would just never, right? They can't even in this regard. Um, I want to deal with that first, keeping in mind that they don't have spiritual ears to hear. So, you know, it is what it is, but the Canaanite issue is, is twofold first. Based on Deuteronomy chapter 9, 4 through 6, Yahweh was not giving the land of Israel, or wasn't giving Israel the land of Canaan because they were super special people who deserve to live their best life now. That's not why God was rescuing his people. He wasn't giving it because they're just so great and they're excellent and they're fun to be around, you know. That's not why he was giving them the land. Over and over again, the Bible says that God is covenanting with his people. He is blessing his children. Father Yahweh gives them his law at Mount Sinai. He's his son. This is how the son is supposed to live. And, um, you know, that's all of grace, right? It's all of grace to begin with, and it's not wages that are owed. Second, the Canaanites were unconscionable pagans whose wickedness could only be met with judgment. So we like to, atheists loved to Oh, the Canaanites, they, they were just harmless people doing their own thing, you know? Why, why such religious intoleration? Why would God instruct them to kill everyone and purge everything from the land? That seems just so rude. Why would God do that? Well, you're underestimating the wickedness of the Canaanites, the abortion rates that were in, in their culture, the, the absolute um, filth of sodomy. I mean, just endless, endless sin and transgression. So note this, that they were God's enemies before they were Israel's enemies. The Canaanites were God's enemies before they were Israel's enemies. The Bible's position is that the removal of the Canaanites from the land was completely and entirely just. So if you ever have a conversation with an atheist agnostic, somebody who questions this, you know, God would never do that. Well, you don't have a category for justice, so we got to deal with that. Because if you did, you would understand that this was entirely just. It's not the Canaanite genocide, which is what historical revisionists with an axe to grind like to call it. It's God's covenant judgment, just like what happened in the flood when God destroyed the world. So Israel is a new Adam going into the new creation land where they are to cultivate the land for the glory of God. The purge of judgment is another flood of judgment, and that's the idea behind Judges. So what Judges tells us is that there is no such thing as combination Christianity, a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of idolatry. There is no combination Christianity. The whole book is a cycle. Israel sins and is oppressed. God raises up to, up a judge to deliver them. The people are grateful, but then after a while they fall into idolatry. They forget. And then they're oppressed by the other nation again. And then they cry out to God and God hears them. And then God raises up a judge and so on. That cycle, by the way, that cycle happens seven times in the book. In Hebrew literature, seven is a very special number. It's the number of perfection, seven days you know, of creation. I mean, the seventh day God rested, six days of actual creation, but the seven is there for a reason. Seven times this cycle happens, but the entire book, by the way, if I could show you a graph visually, the entire book is a downward trend, little, you know, oh, a fun moment of deliverance and then down. A little bit more deliverance and then down. It's just this downward trend into spiritual decline and declension with the book ending in total moral anarchy. So Judges is a lesson on spiritual harlotry and the problem of trying to worship God and oneself. Judges reminds us that in Christ there is no room for divided allegiances. In the kingdom of God there is only the worship of Christ. So let's kind of summarize our, our passage and go from there. And by the way, if you were to just sit down and read this, your average Bible reader, with uh, you know food on the stove, and and is trying to cram in some reading uh, before dinner, your average Bible reader is not really going to see much in here. Uh, and it does require a lot of effort and research to look into this and to like thinking. There's a lot of geography. There's a lot of you know hints and and notes about the geography of the land, and so uh, you, you know. You would need to really dig in to kind of see some of these things. But I'm going to give you some summaries, some, some hints, some literary features and things like that as we go. But I want to start in verses 1 and 2. So the book starts, the book begins by talking about the death of Joshua. The death of God's servants, by the way, is always a marker in biblical literature. If you go back to the book of Joshua, you will know Joshua. The, the book of Joshua begins with the death of Moses. So there's always this marker of history. There's always something connected to one of God's servants. And here we find that Israel, Israel is now without Joshua. He's dead. They're looking for uh, answers. They're looking for guidance on how to proceed against the Canaanites. What are we, what are we supposed to do? So, so far, so good. They look to God for, for an answer. That's a good thing. And Yahweh tells them in verse 2, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Now, this is, by the way, this inquiry is outlined in the book of Numbers, chapter 27. So remember that Israel had gone into the land, but what we have here is a mop-up operation, a final sweeping up of what remains of Canaanite civilization. God had given them the victory. Isn't this the mark of Christianity? God had given them the victory. How will they respond? God gives us the victory. How will we respond Will they work from victory or will they work from idolatry? That is the name of Christianity, by the way. That's the same issue we face today. And that's what sets the tone for the rest of the book. And and by the way, it is noteworthy in reading this that Judah is told to go first. Why is it noteworthy that Judah would be told to go first? Well, because Judah is the tribe of royalty. Judah is the tribe of royalty, the tribe of of kingship. Uh, Both David and Jesus are from The tribe of Judah. The royal scepter should absolutely go first. That's how things go. And in verse 3, we see that Judah brings Simeon along. By the way, Simeon meaning the tribe of Simeon. Together, they do battle against the Canaanites. Um, Simeon and Levi, just a note, were not allowed to have land because of their sins all the way back in Genesis 34. So there's a reason this comes back up in the book of Joshua. Uh, However, we know from Joshua uh, 19 that Simeon was given a portion of Judah. So here Judah goes with Simeon and they are to go in and take the land. That's what Yahweh had told them to do. And in verses 4-7, through we learn that Judah obeyed and Yahweh gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. Perizzites, not parasites, though probably that's something that goes with it. But they struck down 10,000 men in battle. So, we have already another important victory. The first victory, it tells us, is the Lord of Bezek, Adonai Bezek. Adonai means Lord. Lord of Bezek. Fascinating man. He was the top ruler of the entire region. He ruled over 70 kings. In the book of Genesis, how many nations do we have listed in the table of nations? 70. Lord of Bezek was the top dog, he was the man, he was the ruler. He was the guy in charge of everyone. So they defeat him. He was was literally a world leader, and he was utterly decimated. And the text says, uh, don't do this at home, children, but the text says they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Remarkable. But it's interesting because it was a just penalty for him. The significance of cutting off his big toes and his thumbs was... And by the way, he admits that it was a just penalty because he had done the same to other kings, we already know. But Judah makes sure that he never picks up a weapon ever again. The thumb is sort of important to that. He had literally defanged so many people. He was a wicked man. This, I mean, the the very first battle in Judges is significant. He was the world leader. He was decimated. His, his, His thumbs and his big toes were cut off. He was stripped of all of his power, and the serpent, this serpent's head was crushed. Now, the rest of the, the nations were released from his reign of terror as well, which is another significant thing because Israel was supposed to be a priestly nation, and as a priestly nation, they're doing what God had called them to do all along. Free the prisoners, set the captives free, right? Set the people free, release them, and that's what they do. And the text keeps going. It's one thing after another. In verse 8, Judah fought against Jerusalem. And when they win the battle uh, at Jerusalem, they burn Jerusalem to the ground. And the city was always an important city. It goes all the way back even to the time of Abraham and Melchizedek. He was the king of Salem, Jerusalem. He was the king of Jerusalem at that point. But it was always an important city, but it needed to be purged of Canaanite idolatry, so they burned it to the ground, and they started over. It needed to be a place of worship for for God. Um, The Lord, interestingly enough, the Lord of Bezek was actually brought there and put to death there. They literally took him to Jerusalem to kill him. And that's a fitting victory for God's royal city. And interestingly enough, what other king was taken to Jerusalem to be killed? Jesus. Interesting connection. So in verses 9 and 10, Judah, we find, is still on the war path against humanism. Note that they went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country. Wherever sin goes, deliverance has to go further. They're marching through the land, the high places, the low places. They're going and they're seeking to take the land. Hebron is mentioned here. It's significant for Abraham had worshipped God there. Abraham built an altar there, worshipped God at Hebron. It was a significant place. And by the way, Joshua 20, verse 7 lists Hebron as a sanctuary city. So Judah needed to go and take it because God had already repurposed it as a sanctuary city for his people. And they also took the surrounding cities as well. Uh, James Jordan, in his commentary, has an interesting thing here with regard to this, this text here in verses 9 and 10. These three cities that were listed here were actually cities of giants. So... You can look at Numbers thirteen twenty two later on that, but the scepter of Judah always topples the giants. What other king toppled a giant in battle by sticking a rock in his forehead? David. There's a connection here to this. In verses eleven through fifteen, we're introduced to Othniel. Great option, kids for parents if you want a little boy. Othniel, Adi for sure. I don't know Othniel. We're going to see him again, so I'm not going to say a lot about him, but he's going to come back up in, chapter, uh, in the next chapter. But Caleb, here's the story of Caleb. Caleb, was a, he's a great military warrior, five-star general, that type of guy. He is a, a remarkable godly man, and he promises that whoever has the victory over Kiriath-Sephar, and that's the, the, um, the person who's up next on the docket, whoever has the victory will get his daughter in marriage. His, daughter name, his daughter's name was Aksa. A-C-H-S-A-H, probably more like AXA, but I don't know how to repurpose that for anything good. But Caleb's relative, Othniel, who is more like a kind of a great nephew, wins the battle, and he wins the girl. He wins the wife, and she comes along and wants Othniel to secure her covenantal future by getting land down by the springs of water, Again, you just read that before dinner and what is the significance of that? She she wants a nice farm, a ranch somewhere with water. What's the significance of that? Well, this is a family of dominion. Interestingly enough, Kiriath Sefer, Sefer means city of books and this was probably the town where all of the Canaanite library stuff was stored. They probably had tons of pottery where they had stuffed records into it to preserve it. Um, this was an important city for documents. Um, Othniel essentially destroys their genealogical records, uh, other important paperwork. Basically, a significant blow. To uh, imagine going to the National Archives in D.C. and you know burning that to the ground, and there goes the Declaration of Independence. Assuming that that's even in there. Uh, <laughs> this is kind of what happened with Othniel. He took. It was a serious blow to to this to this city. It was a huge victory. So when God, kind of the point here is when God judges nations, he scoops up their paperwork, he throws it in the dustbin of history, and you're gone. And there's a love story, interestingly enough, intertwined here. Sort of uh, all this gruesome battle. There's a love story intertwined with Othniel and Aksa. The springs of water that are noted here, along with the donkey she was riding, reminds us of Eden Reminds us of Eden, where the animals were present and the water streamed out into the world. And that's the goal of the temple vision of Ezekiel. The, the water flowing out of the temple is a significant, uh, it points to the Holy Spirit, the living water that Jesus references to the woman at the well. And that's God's plan to restore the world. Water is important to life. It is a symbol of God's, uh, God, God's goodness and His grace to us. Water is refreshing It has healing power. There's all of these things that are um, at play. So Othniel and Aksa, they desire to live a godly life. They want to be a, a family of dominion and fruitfulness, and they want to serve the Lord all their days. So there's kind of this love story in just a couple of verses that we can see already a snapshot of the work of Christ. Think of Othniel. He's like Jesus. He's the dragon slayer who gets the girl from the dad. That theme comes up again. Further victories to report. Verse 16, we see that the kenites they are relatives, by the way, of Moses by marriage, but the Canaanites are joined up with Judah, for they too, they had no land given to them, so they join up with Judah and their war path, which is another lesson. Men will either humble themselves and join what God is doing, or they are going to perish. But in verse 17, Judah and Simeon struck down the Canaanites living in Zepath, And devoted it to destruction. That's what the name Horma means in Hebrew. The fire was the fire of God that burned the city down. A fire of judgment, a fire of wrath. And you, you read this story and you think, well, everything seems to be going well up until this point, right? Israel is taking the land in obedience, destroying the idols, they're running the Canaanites out. Things are going well, but then things change. Compromise starts to set in. You want to derail your holiness? Where are you compromising? Ask that question. Where are you compromising? In verse 18, uh, Judah rather takes three Philistine cities, but you read this and you realize, wait, there are actually five key Philistine cities. They only took three. What happened to the other two? In verse 19, Judah loses faith. They couldn't dispossess the hill country because the text says they had iron chariots. By the way, hill people don't use iron chariots. They're disaster for trying to do war in the hills with an iron chariot you can't move them fast enough so god can win the battle but they only need to believe and they saw iron chariots and they panicked they lost faith in verses 20 through 21 we see that hebron is given to caleb caleb drives out the giants who lived there however we're also told that the benjaminites they're a problem they're going to come back no offense to Little guy up here. The Benjamites, they, they did not drive out the Jebusites in Jerusalem. They allowed them to stay with them, which was high-handed disobedience. Everything falls apart after this. Verses 22-26. 20 through, 22 through 26. Joseph is now unfaithful. You see that the, the wheels are falling off this thing really quickly. Joseph is unfaithful. Joseph consists of two tribes, by the way, Ephraim and Manasseh. So, long story, but you can read the end of Genesis to, to read about that. Um, the man who helped them take the city of Bethel, we're told, was allowed to go and then build the city of Luz, thus allowing Canaanite civilization to flourish even more. So, another compromise. In verses 27-29, through 29, both Manasseh and Ephraim, they failed to drive out the Canaanites, but instead they let them stay in the land. And it gets worse and worse and worse. In verse 30, the tribe of Zebulun didn't drive out the Canaanites, but instead, guess what they said? Well, we'll just use them as slaves. Again, a direct disobedience against Yahweh's commands. It gets worse. Keep going. Follow along if you'd like. In verses 31-33, through 33, the tribe of Asher and Naphtali, didn't drive them out either. And uh, James Jordan notes that the city of Beth Shemesh, which simply means house of the sun god Shemesh, and Beth Anath, which means house of the fertility goddess, her name being Anath, they were both allowed to stay in place. So the Canaanite idolatry allowed, was, remained in place. Pragmatism is never a good replacement for biblical obedience. It gets worse. I know. How could it possibly do so? In verses 34-36, we have another descent into idolatry. The tribe of Dan actually loses a battle. Everybody else is winning battles, but now Dan loses the battle. And the trouble with Dan is going to come back to the end of the book. But for now, note that the trend that things just spiral out of control. So here's the, here's the prog... Um, you, want to, you want to turn a nation over to idolatry? Here's three steps from Judges. One, fail to drive them out. Two, let the Canaanites flourish alongside of you. And three, then you lose to them. So think of it in modern day terms. Think of a public school education. Allow them to go ahead and keep that idol in place and support the taxation and theft that's involved, and then you lose the culture. That's modern day application of the book of Judges. So that's the problem with idolatry. It's a compromise through and through. We do the same. We entertain the idol, then we cozy up next to the idol, and then we let it ruin us. That's the process. In chapter 2, the angel of Yahweh comes to evaluate their progress or lack thereof. This is probably, by the way, Jesus before his incarnation. The angel of Yahweh was probably the pre-incarnate Jesus. And he comes, he reminds them what the angel of Yahweh had done. What did we do for you? We rescued you out of Egypt. So God chastises His faithless people. And they weren't supposed to covenant with the Canaanites, but they had done so. They weren't supposed to leave their altars in place and their pagan structures, but they had done so. And the angel gives two judgments. First, the Canaanites are going to be a pain in the neck, or actually a thorn in the side, as it were. A thorn in the side. They wanted the idol. God's going to make them eat it. You know, going to shove their face right down in it. And you will eat this and you will enjoy it, right? That's what God's going to do. And second, the angel says that their gods will become a snare to you. That is, the snare, which is a trap used to catch an animal, will grab them by the foot and it will injure them and it will render them helpless. That's another serpent crushing head uh, motif as well. So idolatry and adultery, the weight of of all sin. And by the way, look at verse 5, because I want you to see where all of this is going, just trending downward. In verse 5, the place is named, is named Bachem, which means tears or those who weep. Israel comes to the end of themselves here in this moment. They find themselves truly sorry. They cry. They weep. They mourn for their sin. They sacrifice to Yahweh. They admit that they had failed him, and God is gracious. So already in the first section, that's a lot, but I really wanted to set the tone. Let's apply it. As Christians living in the age of the new covenant, God has still called us to take the land. This is because God uses means to accomplish his ends. We are not called to take up arms and go door to door, be baptized or meet your creator, that sort of thing. We may go door to door, but we are going with the power of the gospel and not the power of your nine millimeter But take the land is still the prerogative. That's what the Great Commission is all about. That's what Hebrews is all about. We are to take the land. The book of Acts fleshes that out as well. Anything short of this attitude towards the Great Commission is disobedience. Okay, Any church that's not constantly thinking through discipling the nations, discipling the nations, how do we teach this county how to obey Christ? How do we teach... Um, Others that are in our sphere of influence, how do we teach them to obey Christ? If you're not thinking about that, you're already on the path of disobedience. And contrary to what most evangelicals believe today, the Bible is in fact interested in Christianizing the world, and you should not ever feel ashamed at such a statement. And this means abolishing certain things like abortion, government schools, the state, (laughs) But it also means building things like Othniel and his wife had done. Building covenant families. Building godly institutions. Those are good things. Taking the land absolutely looks like deconstructing the idols and reconstructing with the law word of God. And the reason reason Yahweh wanted the Canaanites out of the land and the Israelites in the land was twofold. First, the Canaanites were wicked. Their judgment was just. They, their judgment drew nigh. The cup had been full. God's wrath was ready to go. They, they had, their debauchery had reached its limit. God's justice was coming for them because of their iniquity. But the underlining issue was one of spiritual disease. That's the underlining issue. You look around you right now and all the nonsense. It's spiritual disease and it's self inflicted idolatry. That's what we have. The threat here was less about military. You read all these things that happened, but it was less about military and more about false spirituality and idolatry. When we read that the tribes did not dispossess, we are supposed to feel the emergency situation. This lack of dispossessing was commensurate with the increase in idolatry and the increase of the problems. Toleration of evil, by the way, in any any section of your life, toleration of evil always lends itself and leads itself into apostasy. The minute you stop thinking that the word of God applies in this situation is a, minute, is a moment you start lending yourself to the toleration of evil and thus apostasy. So God's judgment was just there with the Canaanites. But the second reason God wanted the Canaanites out of the land and the Israelites in the land was because God intended to establish his priests in the world. It wasn't just, they're evil, you might as well go and live there. It's not like that. It's, they're wicked, I need to do something about it, so I'm going to establish my people in the world for a specific reason. It was a planting of a flag, a declaration of Yahweh's intent to recapture the world for His glory. How can the nation of priests demonstrate the wisdom of God when they are entangled in all these reproaches? How? How? It's like, how can you influence the world when the church is so inept at basic things? You can't. How could they possibly teach the nations how to have a single-hearted focus on Yahweh and His Word when they themselves had duplicitous hearts? And the lesson, the lesson is clear, I think. Half-hearted discipleship is fraudulent half-hearted discipleship is fraudulent. To tolerate even a shred of idolatry in your life is to plunge oneself into apostasy and spiritual defection. The downgrade of Christianity in our day is eerily similar to what we find in the book of Judges, which is partly why I wanted to walk through it so much. A little forgetfulness here, a dash of compromise over there. Yeah, I haven't prayed in two weeks, but that's fine. You know, I haven't read my Bible in a month it's fine. A little compromise here. All of those things, suddenly the recipe has produced nothing but trouble for you and everyone around you. And that's the warning of judges. If we're going to recapture the land for King Jesus, it's going to have to be nothing short of a violent chastisement of our own hearts and a serious evaluation of what idols we are allowing to take residence in our, in our hearts. We have to look inward. To see where we stand, we are priests after the order of Christ, which means we imitate him, not the world. We have the example set in front of us. Without the centrality of the gospel, the significance and the comprehensive nature of the law of God, without any of those things, we will be complacent and we will be compromised. (laughs) You simply cannot expect to have joy in Jesus when you're fine with a little Baal and a little Asherah in your life. You cannot expect to have forgiveness when you're fine with a little bit of sin, a little bit of unrighteousness, respectable sins, those types of things. Christianity teaches the same thing that Yahweh had taught Israel, namely the exclusivity of King Jesus. Christianity is intolerant. You know, that's sort of like a taboo thing these days. You, know, you, shouldn't, you need to be very tolerant, but I'm totally fine with going to the Pride Parade in D.C. and voicing my intolerance. Christianity is intolerant of other kings and lords who would dare try to usurp the kingdom of God. We Christianity is utterly intolerant. It's intolerant of sin. It's intolerant of idolatry. It's intolerant of compromise. We live in a time of great political jockeying, and that's because we live in a time of great religious jockeying. The gods are all trying to have their voices heard in the town square. That's what they're doing. The the pluralism that we have allowed to take place has left Christianity sidelined and paganism is now in the game running amok. And until we reach the repentance we're supposed to reach, we're going to continue to see our culture downgrade into the void. Disintegration into the void, Van Til called it. And it doesn't take long for compromise to set in. Think about this. Our churches start to get cute all in the name of reaching the lost at any cost. I heard that phrase so much when I was pastoring in Michigan. I could throw up. Reach the lost at any cost. What, what nonsense. At any cost? The cost of the authority of the Scriptures? We shove the Bible up there on the shelf when we start giving our TED Talks. We assume the Bible doesn't have any more authority than we do. We shove our kids into Caesar's learning centers to be discipled into statism. You know, we we throw our kids into the daycare system so that mom can go work to pay for the daycare system. We attend apathetic churches with apathetic pastors who preach apathetic gospels. And what have we reaped because of it? Question. Question. Does the church today have influence in the world? Let me ask it a different, a different way. Is the world clamoring to learn from the wisdom of the church? Or has the church been sidelined for her disobedience? And I think we all know the answer. Judges is a call to return to single-hearted devotion to the one true God it's a call to reform our lives through the vehicle of repentance it's a summons to embrace the total lordship of Jesus Christ in every area of life to refuse to compromise with idolatry to refuse to participate in the spiritual fornication all around us to refuse to try and have our spiritual cake and eat it too to refuse to look with our eyes as Joel tells us we must return to God with our whole hearts Tearing open our hearts in repentance and not just tearing open our garments. In short, the book of Judges tells us what happens when we try to share the throne with Jesus Christ. Yes, we must take the land. But long before we take the land, we must have the Holy Spirit take our hearts, take our families, and take our churches. And that is how you take the land. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for the history we find and what we see here In this wonderful book called Judges. And we know that Jesus, you are the great judge. You are the great deliverer. You are the Holy Spirit filled um, guider of your people. And we thank you that you are the captain of our salvation. And we thank you that you lead us into faithfulness. If only we would not be stiff necked. Father, would you send your spirit afresh that we would have the idolatries rooted out of our hearts? the duplicitous mindsets that we have. God, would You help us to not be tempted into sin, but to deliver us from the evil one. Because it is true, Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.